Most Americans know little more about our nation's native peoples than that they hosted a Thanksgiving dinner for the pilgrims and that Navajos were code talkers in World War II. The only names of Indians they might know are Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse because of their victory over General Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876, Geronimo, the Apache leader whose exploits in the Southwest captivated the nation in the 1880s, and Ira Hayes, because the Pima Marine helped raise the American flag on Iwo Jima during World War II. Much of this ignorance about America's native peoples is the result of the paucity of information students learn about them in the classroom. And what little they do learn is that Indians were largely adversaries, not allies, friends, or patriots. Certainly they and their teachers are unaware of the key role Indians have played in our nation's armed forces. In truth, Indians have been our staunchest allies since the American Revolution. Many people, when they hear this, express disbelief. Why would American Indians choose to serve a country that has betrayed its promises to them and treated them so poorly. However, when Indians are asked why they serve, their response is that we are a warrior people who have a sacred responsibility to protect our homeland, our families, our communities, and our cultural traditions. Relatively few people both here and abroad are aware that American Indians have served in the armed forces of the United States in each of our nation's conflicts, beginning with the War for Independence from Great Britain. Indians have not only served, but they continue to serve at a higher rate in proportion to their population than any other ethnic group in the United States, even though most were not granted citizenship until after World War I. Nonetheless, although most were not eligible for the draft, they volunteered to fight in astonishing numbers. Of the 10,000 Native Americans who served in the Army and the 2,000 who served in the Navy during World War I, three out of four were volunteers. World War II witnessed an even more remarkable wave of American Indian patriotism. In fact, had all eligible non-Indian males in the United States enlisted in the same proportion as tribal people, there would have been no need for a draft. All told, 10% of the country's Hawaiian and Native American population of 350,000 saw active duty during World War II. This represented one-third of all able-bodied Indian men from 18 to 50 years of age. Nearly 800 Native women also served. It is an exemplary record of military service that continues to this day. As one Hopi leader explained, the fact that American Indians are fighting for this great country needs to be recognized. We may have been a conquered people, but we were not a defeated people, and our warriors will always rise to the call of battle. One of those warriors was Private First Class Lori Ann Piestawa, who died in 2003 during Operation Iraqi Freedom. The Hopi mother of two is believed to be the first known Native American woman to die fighting in our nation's armed forces. Another unfortunate distinction for Native American warriors was the death of Master Sergeant Joshua Wheeler, a Cherokee from Roland, Oklahoma. Sergeant Wheeler is the first known U.S. casualty in the fight against ISIS, a member of the Army's elite Delta Force and the recipient of 11 bronze stars during his military career. He died in October 2015 
while attempting to rescue prisoners in northern Iraq. The best known of Indians in the military is that of the Navajo Code Talkers in World War II. But few people know that the Code Talker story actually begins with the Choctaws in World War I. World War I was a long, terrible, bloody conflict. went on for years. It was basically trench warfare, and it killed an enormous amount of people. Part of the problem was for the Allies that the Germans could not be surprised. They were so proficient in intercepting codes, intercepting messages, that surprise attacks didn't work. Then the United States entered the war, 1917, and in that group of soldiers who came over were American Indians. Now, you may recall that the Germans were terrified of Indians. They had read the stories of Karl May, who was a kind of the Zane Gray of Germany, and he turned Indians into supermen. In fact, some of the newspapers in Germany tried to assure their people that even though the Americans had entered the war, there were no Indians in the group. But in fact, there were. There were thousands. And the key moment for these Indian soldiers was the discovery that their languages were undecipherable. And all this occurred one evening. An officer was listening to some of his Choctaw soldiers talking around the campfire, and he couldn't understand a word they were saying. And he suddenly hit on the idea that, well, if I can't understand them, maybe the Germans can't either. And so he asked the soldiers if they wouldn't mind giving messages in their language. And they said, sure, why not? So they started sending messages to each other over a telephone. And, incredible as it seems, the very first time that the Choctaws gave their messages, the battle was successful. They surprised the Germans in their trenches. And that idea swept through the Allied ranks. Then Indian soldiers in other parts of the uh, warfare zones started using their messages. And so the tide of battle turned rapidly. Within 30 days of the Indians using their languages to deliver messages, the Germans were in retreat. And the war ended shortly thereafter. And one German soldier who was captured, who was involved with communication, asked his captors, and he said, what language were you people using? We thought we knew everything, and we couldn't understand a word that was being said. And the soldiers that were talking with the German soldiers said, the language you are using was American. Now, that really had an impact on the German people, and as World War II started to loom on the horizon, Adolf Hitler got the idea of maybe they ought to start studying Indian languages. And so suddenly you had German scholars in quotes, showing up in Indian country, trying to make friends with Indians and learn their language. And of course, that had little success because the Indian languages were not recorded. Uh, there are very few of them were any, in any written form. Now, we call these first Indian speakers code talkers, but they weren't really using codes. They were just speaking in their language. However, because the Indians don't have certain words in their language applied to the military, they had to create something. So, for example, when they had to send a message about poison gas, they used the phrase bad air. Bombers were birds. Tanks were turtles. Regiments were ears of corn. So anyhow, it, they knew to speak to each other in, in their created language, and it worked very well. Now, when World War II broke out, the military remembered the impact of the Indian speakers, and so they actually did launch a real program to develop code talkers, and they had code talking schools. The tribe that gets the most attention, of course, is the Navajo. They've supplied 
supplied something like 400 code talkers, mostly in the Pacific theater. But in reality, there were at least 31 tribes that provided code talkers. Some tribes, there was only two or three. Others, there were a couple of hundred. But the uh, code talkers had a tremendous impact. Now, again, we know very little about them because these Indians were sworn to secrecy not to tell what they were doing. And they didn't even tell their own families they were code talkers. That is why so much of this has only come out in recent years. And Congress recently authorized the issuing of medals to the tribes that had provided code talkers. Anyhow, long overdue recognition of Indian patriotism and service, Congress authorized the creation of a national memorial for Native American veterans to be built on the mall in Washington, D.C. The groundbreaking for this will be November, this November, and the dedication will be November 11, 2020. The memorial will be on the grounds of the Museum of the American Indian, and it has been designed. I was on the selection committee, and we had 140 ideas for the memorial turned in from people around the world. Congress insisted that it had to be kept secret, so no one could identify who had submitted the designs. It was all supposed to be done on the merits, quality of the design. And that's why a person who one could have easily been a girl from China or a, a man from Russia. So anyhow, we had the 140 submissions. There was a team of about a dozen people, and we analyzed those designs for a period of about a week. And then we picked five finalists. And each of the finalists received $25,000 to then develop a working model of their design and also to pay for the cost of hiring contractors and architects who would work with them and also to pay for their expenses to come to Washington to give a presentation of uh, their design. Now, the Indian community was very anxious for an American Indian to be the designer of this memorial, which makes a lot of sense, but we couldn't guarantee that. And we were very pleased when we finally found out, we picked our five finalists, and then we knew their names and their ethnicity, and two of them were American Indian. One was a Vietnamese person, family had come come over after the Vietnam War. One was a Maori from New Zealand, and one was a woman from New York State. And the one that was picked was Harvey Pratt, Cheyenne from Oklahoma. And we could not have had a better selection if we'd gone to casting by Hollywood. He's a Marine. He was in Vietnam. He has a great cultural background. He's an artist, and he's just the perfect person for promoting and developing this memorial. Now, for two years before the selection, members of the Museum of the American Indian and myself went around the country visiting Indian people to get their thoughts on this memorial. Did they want the memorial? You know, my favorite joke is that when you have four Indians, you have five opinions. There are 550 Indian tribes, and if you know your history, they didn't all get along with each other. So the idea then was, would they want to cooperate and work together, build one memorial? memorial for veterans. What we did is we would visit Indian communities, Indian reservations, and we would send the word out that we were going to show up on such and such a date, and we welcomed all Indian veterans who would like to come and talk to us to come to a meeting. And these meetings were very fascinating. We might have five Indians show up, or we might have 105. And when we met with them, we would have a microphone, and each of the veterans who wanted to could identify themselves, make some comments about 
about the memorial. Where did they want to see it located? Uh, what should it look like? And should it be on the mall? Should it be on Independence Avenue, which is a busy street next to the museum? And that's where we folks at the museum thought people would want it, that everyone would see it as they went by. So anyhow, we learned a lot from this two-year exercise. Uh, one is the Indians very much wanted this memorial, and it was fascinating that when they'd get on the microphone and start talking about this idea, many of them got very emotional and would even start crying. The idea that there was going to be a memorial to honor their military service was just overwhelming. So many of them said, you know, finally now the United States sees Indians as their friends and not their enemies. Only one of the Indians who we met with said he did not like the idea. And his position was that Indians have been segregated throughout the history in this country, and he felt that to have a monument just for Indians would be part of that segregation process. He was a Vietnam veteran, and he said he identifies with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C. But he is the only one who, and all those people we communicated with, several thousand, who had that opinion. Now, they all wanted the memorial to be on the mall side of the museum in the waterway. They wanted a place that was very private, that they could go and pray and, and burn sweet grass and communicate with the afterlife. And of course, part of the problem there is that the public is going to want to be there as well. So it was a challenge to come up with a design that would answer that need. And yet I think we did quite well with the design we selected. And you should go online and look up on the museum's website, the National Native American Veterans Memorial, and also the name Harvey Pratt, and you will see a very fine drawing and uh, description of this memorial. Now, of all the stories we heard out there on our consults with Indian people, one, one was very dramatic and striking. We were with the Kiowan Comanches in western Oklahoma, and we had about 75 or so people, veterans there speaking, and one veteran came on stage then, and it was a woman. Her name is Rhonda Williams, and she said, I want you to know that I am a full-blood Indian, but I am one-fourth Comanche, one-fourth Kiowa, one-fourth Delaware, and one-fourth Apache. And I am now a colonel in the United States Army, and I was in Afghanistan with my soldiers, and wherever I went, I caused a sensation. The idea that here is a, a woman in charge of men soldiers, you know, kind of unheard of over there. And so she said, one village we went into, you know, I was quickly surrounded by a group of townspeople, and they looked at me, and they said, who are you? And she said, well, tell them I'm an American. And, well, yeah, yeah, we know you're an American. Then one question was, who are your parents? And then she realized that they were interested in her ethnicity. And she told the interpreters, you know, tell them I am an American Indian. And right away they started shouting, India, India. No, no, tell them I'm an American Indian. And one of the interpreters understood and said, oh, she's a red American. And so with that, then the next question was, if you are a red American, what tribe are you? And these are tribal people. And so they understood what it meant to be a tribal person. And she says, well, tell them I am from four tribes and I am one-fourth Comanche, one-fourth Kiowa, one-fourth Delaware. And there was all silence. And then he said, and I'm one-fourth Apache. And they started shouting, Geronimo, Geronimo, Zane Gray, Geronimo. And once that calmed down, one of the men then asked the question, we are puzzled. How can you be a red American? We have learned that the American people 
killed all their red people. And with that, she started sobbing as she told us this story. And she said, that's why this memorial is so important. Here I am, a soldier fighting for the United States, an American Indian, and people around the world don't even know American Indians still exist. And this memorial will do much to educate the world that we are still here. And of course, it will do much to help educate Americans to the role of Indians. And also, we hope to improve the teaching about American Indians in our classrooms. One of the questions invariably that was asked when we finished our discussions with these Indian groups would be, does this mean now that kids in the American classrooms will learn about Indians being friends and patriots? And so that is the challenge we now have with this memorial. Not only to make it beautiful and noteworthy, but also to develop the educational outreach that should go with it. Thank you very much.